So, um, the racy chapter 38 of Genesis. It's kind of difficult at times to read through the scripture and just face what it has to say to us. We were most recently dealing with Joseph and his 11 brothers, how they hated him. They had thrown him into a pit and then sold him off to a group of traveling traders. And now you just shift gears suddenly into this account with Judah. There's a 22-year uh, occurrence here that takes place. You take, sort of take a hiatus away from Joseph and get a couple decades of information squashed down into chapter 38. So verse 1 says, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now, it could be that Judah is making this decision because of the violence and the treachery of his brothers. You know, what they had just done to Joseph perhaps led Judah to the place of, I just need to separate myself from these men and from their behavior. Now, something I want you to take note of in this process, that while Judah, seemingly with Joseph, sort of had a better behavior than his brothers, now we're going to see that Judah's behavior himself is not admirable. He's as human as the rest of us. And within that, maybe we can find some application, right? Sometimes we look over at other people and think, well, you know, I might be a sinner, but thank goodness I'm not like that person. Give yourself a few minutes. You'll usually find that you have your own areas of compromise that you need to submit to the Lord in. Now, this statement uh, that Judah visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Uh, I don't know if you have friendships that you would describe as partners in crime. You know, I, uh, over the years, had some of those lingering friendships and relationships that I could only describe that way. You know, they've got all of the information and all of the goods on me, and if they were ever to speak, I'd have to make them disappear or something. You know, I just... <coughs> They're not good friendships. Paul tells us in the New Testament, it's not just a wives' tale. The scripture says bad company corrupts good morals. Okay, Friendships. You want to be very careful about friendships and who you're around. Here, Judah hanging out with Hira doesn't produce good things. He's one of those friends that they're probably far too comfortable with one another. They don't hold one another accountable to a relationship with God. You don't see Hira raising the bar for Judah. Okay, Judah, of the family of God, descended from Abraham and all the promises of Abraham, you don't see him raising the bar for Hira. They just sort of sink into their low behavior. And uh, maybe we can identify with that. Verse 2, Judah saw 
there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son. And she called his name Onan. She conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezib when she bore him. So the three sons born here. Now, we're going to move into a couple points of discussion that are challenging to say the least. But I need to sort of set a biblical picture for us before we begin. There is a premise in this passage of the Leverite marriage, and it's referred to as that because it becomes part of the Levitical law. Eventually, Moses sets this down. We see a few occasions of it throughout the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. The Leverite marriage is this, that because of Abraham and the promises that were given to Abraham, particularly of the fact that that there was going to eventually be a Messiah, a Savior of the whole world, born through their family. Jesus is going to come through their lineage. Because of that, and because of the laws of inheritance, the law is eventually set forward, which sort of begins right here, where if a man marries a woman and he passes away, it was required of the next oldest brother that he marry that woman and that he give her a son, particularly, and that the son be named after the brother who had passed away and that that son who was born would then receive the inheritance that was due to the brother who had first passed away. So here we're going to see the beginning of that, eventually you'll get to Leviticus, and there it's set down in law. Most of you are familiar with the book of Ruth, where Ruth the Moabitess has married into a Jewish family. Her husband has passed away, and she comes with her mother-in-law back into the land of Israel. There the Lord makes arrangements for her to fall in love with a man named Boaz, who is part of her family, who is responsible for marrying her because her husband passed away. And so she actually proposes to Boaz that he marry her, and he says, I'll do that, but there's actually one of our kin who's closer to you than I am. He's actually required to marry you. So they go before the town magistrates, and there present the case. And the Levitical law is upheld, what Moses had said, that if a man refuses to marry the woman whose husband has passed away, he's required to take off his shoe and give it to the woman. That makes sense, doesn't it? And then she is actually required by law to spit on his face. Again, makes sense as you know, you just think about it. Obviously, it's the way it would go. Um, <clears throat> and then he would be known from that day forward 
literally in the culture in the town as the man who had loosed his shoe. I don't know. It's it's literally the Levitical law. It's the way it's required. There are some particular spiritual pictures. If you're thinking, I knew the Bible was weird, you know, follow this. In the very beginning, as Eve falls into sin, God pronounces the curse upon the snake, Lucifer, who had come in the form of a serpent and deceived her. He says, there will someday come a seed, a descendant, who you will bruise his heel when he crushes your head. And that's a picture of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. The death at the cross was merely a bruise to Jesus Christ's heel because he rose from the dead. He was basically unaffected by death itself. But in that, he crushed the very seat of power that Satan had, death itself. He destroyed death. He gave us the hope and freedom from the grave. Listen, it's a stretch, but follow this concept. Jesus Christ's heel is bruised. You're going to see that plainly if, if you were to take his sandal off, right? He redeemed us, right? So he doesn't have to take off his sandal. Satan owns the world right now. That's Jesus' quote, right? He's the God of this world. That's why everything is so wicked around us. Romans 6.16 says, Who you obey, that's your master. Okay, Adam and Eve were given the world in Genesis by God. Lucifer shows up, and who do they obey? Lucifer. So, de facto, Lucifer becomes their master. But can Lucifer redeem us? No. No, he cannot. So if Lucifer's sandal is taken off, he has no bruised heel. It's plainly seen that he has no victory. The one who cannot redeem us, the bride, gets to own his shoe and spit in his face. It's quite a remarkable picture. So here, this thing continues until Jesus is on the scene and the Sadducees even bring this subject up, saying, there were seven brothers. The eldest married a woman, and he died, and the next younger married her, and she died, and the next younger married her, until all of them had married her, you know, at that point, CSI would have been really helpful. Six brothers dying at the hands of this woman? You might want to ask why. They don't believe in the resurrection. That's their whole point. Jesus answers them and says, when you're resurrected, you're like the angels. You're neither given nor taken in marriage, so don't try to confuse the subject. The resurrection is real, and Christ's redemption is real. Here... Judah has these sons, and it says that Judah took a wife, as it was, for Ur, verse 6, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Wow. 
Now, this is usually where pastors and commentators begin to speculate upon what the wickedness was. And I can tell you plainly, we have no idea what the wickedness was. It must have been pretty serious. You don't read anywhere in the scripture that God found an individual that had upset him so badly that he, God himself, killed that man. It's a remarkable thing. You think about this, right? Cain killed Abel. God didn't kill Cain. God actually put a protective mark upon him and said anyone that harms Cain will himself be punished. Whatever it was that this man did must have been particularly heinous. That God himself steps into the situation and kills the man. Now in verse 8, it says, And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her. Notice this and raise up an heir to your brother. Raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. He's not going to get anything out of this child being the heir. Nothing's going to come to him financially or in regard to property. He's not going to receive anything. It's going to go to the boy, and it's going to go to the mother. It's going to go to Tamar. It says, And it came to pass when he went in to his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Now, the speculations once again run wild at this point. I need to just very plainly say the scripture does not say here that masturbation or emitting the seed on the ground, coitus interruptus, is forbidden by God. What God is condemning is the fact that this man refused to fulfill God's law and provide an heir. That's what was forbidden. Now, I've heard pastors say, from this, that God has nothing to say about birth control. Okay, now hang on a second. Because while God does give us the freedom to choose whether we have families or how large a family we will have, God gives us that freedom. Again, I don't mean to cause anyone discomfort emotionally spiritually, physically, in any way. But there are some forms of birth control that we should be aware of their function. For instance, the pill and IUD, interuterine devices. I have had conversations with doctors as a pastor, because I get asked these questions a lot. You might not think that, but you start doing premarital counseling, and questions get asked. <laughs> Both the pill and IUD do not prevent, they do not prevent conception. The sperm and the egg do unite. They do cause 
pregnancy, what both the pill and the IUD do <coughs> is cause the, the female body to shed the lining of the uterus, even if there is a fertilized egg there. Most people who are opposed as believers to abortion are unaware of that. They're unaware of the fact that the IUD and the pill both are causing the female body to abort a pregnancy. The only way as a Christian to prevent that is literally by preventing the seed from coming in contact, the sperm from coming in contact with the egg. If you choose some method <coughs> that allows for that, God doesn't have anything to say in opposition to that in the Scripture. Okay, But life and the sanctity of life and the protection of life, the protection of the innocent, God specifically says in the Scripture that He is the protector of children. You mess with children, you think about what Jesus said in the scripture about if you mess with children it would be jesus said this right everybody oh i like the god of the new testament loving gracious accepting jesus of the new testament i don't like the judgmental god of the old testament well just to be clear it's the same god he's the same yesterday today and forever jesus said you mess with a child it'd be better for you that the lower millstone that's the giant millstone you see, like, ornately set in people's rock walls and fences, you know, four feet across, six feet across. It'd be better for you that the lower millstone be hung around your neck and you be thrown into the depths of the sea. That's Jesus, loving, gracious, accepting New Testament Jesus. Uh, if you haven't ever thought that through, I, I get a little weird on most subjects. Uh, you're going to plummet into the depths of the ocean so fast with a millstone tied around your neck that you're not going to drown, right? The atmospheric pressure doubles every 33 feet. You're going to get crushed by the depth of the ocean. God is very, very serious about the life of children, okay? If you're sitting here right now feeling overwhelmed and condemned by this, please, let the grace of God flood your heart. Understand his forgiveness and his acceptance. The war that we are engaged in, from the very beginning, you guys, Lucifer comes to Eve, and the very first thing he says, the war begins between the human race, Satan and his followers, and God. The very first thing he says is, has God said? Satan calls into question God's word. That's the struggle we're engaged in, is to look at God's word and accept it for what it is, or listen to the voices in our head, in our culture, in the spiritual realm that want to call into question God's word. Our culture is filled with people that say, oh, I can't really believe the Bible. It's full of contradictions. I hope you've learned from me by now, if you haven't done it already, to quickly ask, name one. I have never, never, I'm sure there are people out there that think they know of a contradiction. 
Every time I've been asked that in 30 plus years, I can't believe the Bible, it's full of contradictions. I ask immediately, can you name one? No one has ever given me a single one. That's public opinion, that the book is full of contradictions, that it's somehow wrong. It claims to be perfect. It claims to be the very word of God breathed forth from him. That's a pretty high standard, right? If I stood here right now and said, by the way, I'm perfect. Right? All you'd have to do is watch for a few seconds, right? I probably wouldn't take a minute and you'd realize this guy is a liar. It would be plainly seen that I'm imperfect. The Bible claims perfection. If you're sitting there now thinking, yeah, I don't think it is perfect. That's your responsibility to prove it wrong. Because it claims perfection. It claims to have been breathed forth as God's word itself. So, back to this subject. Here, this man has just died because he refuses to give an heir to, uh, to Abraham. Okay? The lineage is supposed to continue from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And Onan says, I don't want to cooperate with that. I'm not into it. I'm not into the blessings. I'm not into the promises. I'm not into our family line and lineage. I don't care about spiritual things. God's not pleased with that, as you can see. So here it says... The thing that he did displeased God, therefore the Lord killed him also. Then Judas said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila is grown. Go home and stay with your parents, please. Okay, we've had enough difficulty for the moment. Sheila's still quite young. I just need you to go stay with your dad for a while. And then we get the explanation in the remainder of verse 11. For he said, and this is sort of like in his heart. He didn't say it to her. This is his thinking. Lest he also die like his brothers. <laughs> this girl is bad business. You know, <laughs> just one son was heartbreaking. I've given this girl two and they're both dead now. I really don't feel like pushing my luck any further. So, from a human perspective, we can sort of understand. Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. So, this is Judah's wife. Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. Now, the idea is, as it was explained, Judah's wife passes away and he goes through the prescribed period of time of mourning. In most cases, that was a year. It might have been much shorter. What we should get from it is that, you know, he didn't just immediately forget the memory of his wife and move on. He has spent the time to mourn the loss. And now the sheep shearers are going up to Timnah. That's a time of celebration. So a man who is a successful business person, lost his wife, the prescribed time has passed, and now there's a great opportunity for celebration. 
They it's basically about money. They're finishing the year. They're shearing the sheep. They're selling the wool. It's it's time to celebrate. So here he's going up to Timnah. He and here it is his friend Hira the Adulamite. So again, his comrade in arms, right? His partner in crime. It was told Tamar saying, "Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah." to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given to him as wife. So unnamed periods of time are taking place here, right? Judas lost his wife. We don't know how long he mourned. You know, Tamar has lost her second husband, and enough time has passed that the summary is Sheila is now old enough to be married and hasn't been given to her. So there's a dishonesty that's going on in the part of Judah. So she's covered her face, and she's sitting here in the open, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face, which was the common practice of prostitutes in the day. Told you this was a racy chapter. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you intimately to have intercourse is what he's saying. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he will. He said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Will you give me some kind of surety? How about a down payment to ensure that I'm going to actually get this young goat that you've pledged to me? Then he said, you know, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord, and your staff that is in your hand. Now, if you read commentaries or study elsewhere, you may find different definitions than what I'm about to give. But I think that his belt and his ring and his staff are probably the most accurate understanding of the signet, the cord, and the staff that he has. The signet was the family seal. So if he was doing business and they were going to ship some things back home, put them in the box or the crate, seal it with wax, and embed the signet seal onto the wax so that if that's broken, you'll know someone has gotten into your goods while they were being transported. You can do business with the signet ring. It's sort of the bank account in a way. So it's very valuable. Signet ring cord, they were usually handmade, forgive my cough. So they were unique, right? You didn't just have everybody having belts that everybody else had. Walmart wasn't in existence yet. It was specifically made for you by someone so people would know your belt. 
same with the staff. Every man chose his staff for himself based upon its usefulness to him. As shepherds, <laughs> they wanted specific heights. They wanted specific features. You know, we see that big crook and hook. That was very often on the staff for picking them up out of you know places they had fallen into. People would know one another's staff. So all of these things say very specifically Judah. So those that see them will know. So in this process, he hands over these items, <coughs> and she's going to hang on to them. He gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. She's been impregnated by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So she goes back to the garments of mourning. Verse 20, Judas sent the young goat by the hand of of his friend, the Adulamite. It's going to get real obvious here in a moment what I mean about having your partner in crime. He received to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where's the harlot who openly sat by the roadside? They said, There's no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said, There is no harlot in this place. Then Judas said, Let her take them for herself. And here it is. Lest we, not just I, we, you, Hira, and me, lest we be ashamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. Again, I just want to point out the compromise we sometimes have with our friendships. You know, certain people that know certain things about certain behaviors or occasions, that shouldn't be part of the life of a believer. We should be above reproach. If, if we were not in the past, right, most of us were not, so be it, right? Paul gives a long list of sins and sinners in the New Testament and then he says to those he's addressing, such were, were some of you. Past tense. right? It needs to be the past tense for us, not the present tense. If that behavior is, is our past tense history, it actually becomes a credential to us in our work and our service to the Lord. If it's the present tense, it becomes not only a liability to us, it becomes a liability to the Lord, and that should never be the case. That my present behavior somehow bears negative mark upon my Savior. So, here, we'd be ashamed, for I sent this young goat, and you've not found her. Verse 24, it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. And you just know Judah's going to be so gracious at this point, right? Because he's a sinner himself, and he's failed so miserably on every level that clearly when he gets this news, what he's going to want to do is just extend the same grace of God to her that God has extended to him. Clearly, that's going to be how he behaves. 
So Judas said, bring her out and let her be burned. That's more how we behave as human beings in our sinfulness, right? My sin always looks so much worse when someone else is doing it. If I'm doing it, well, then it's justified and understandable. If someone else is doing it, I can't believe they call themselves a Christian. It's shameful the way we act. Extend the grace of God. We need to hold people accountable and yet give the same grace. When she was brought out, verse 25, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, did I read on? Yeah, burned that. Okay, so verse 25. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her, her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. It's unfortunate <clears throat> that we behave in the way we do so very often. The lack of grace, the condemning that we bring. In John chapter 8, verse 7, Jesus said to a crowd that was about to stone a woman to death, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now, in that process, Jesus was writing on the ground. We don't know what was written. What we do know is that the Scripture tells us from the oldest down to the youngest, they began to leave. You can pretty much assume Jesus was writing something on the ground that convicted each one of them, from the oldest to the youngest, causing them to realize, I need to just get out of here. Here's this woman caught in the act of adultery, dragged out of the street naked, and they're going to stone her to death. <coughs> Jesus is just writing, saying, if you're without sin, go ahead, start throwing stones. We need to be clear because when it's done and the crowd has dispersed, Jesus says to the woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all left. They're all gone. Now, what the world focuses on is the fact that at that moment, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And this world that preaches tolerance goes, amen. We all need to be like that. But Jesus finishes that same sentence by saying, go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. He classifies her behavior in sin and tells her it's got to stop right here. You see, what we tolerate, we condone. We have to hold the biblical standard. You can't tolerate sin. 
in your own life, most importantly. But even within the church, we need to hold one another accountable. Remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells the church at Corinth, that man who's living amongst you in gross sexual sin, you need to put him out of the church. You need to kick him out of the church. That his body would be destroyed so that his soul might be saved. Then we read in 2 Corinthians, Paul is telling them, that man has repented and you've forgiven him. I've already forgiven him with you. You should be restoring him back into the church. The church needs to really understand accountability, discipline, and God's grace combined. It's tragically, it's tragically imbalanced when the church just wants grace. When it's just handing out grace. We have to hold the line of biblical standard for the health of the congregation, the body of Christ. If we do not, then it corrupts everyone. Not that like I'm above you or you're above me or anybody's better than one another. Sin will corrupt the entire church. And quite frankly, it has corrupted most of it. Through tolerance. And man, is that not the harmonic theme of our culture? Tolerance. Everybody wants tolerance. Tolerate everything. And look where it's taking us. Look where that tolerance is taking us. Into unthinkable realms. There are organizations that are emerging right now that want the ability to molest our children legally. Once you start saying, you know, marriage isn't what the Bible defines, we're going to redefine it, and we're going to redefine this, and we're going to redefine it. Let's redefine everything. Tolerance. The biblical standard has to be held. While we can say, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone, right? It's It's not the place or the call for Christians to take up arms and start punishing sinners. Right? Because we'd have to punish ourselves first. But it is the clarity and call of the Scripture to declare sin, sin. Unrighteousness, unrighteousness. And righteousness, righteousness. We were told, we were warned by the apostles that in the last days, the world would begin to call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. Right? And you go, well, I, I am I am seeing that whole, you know, calling that which is evil good. But you're also seeing when I stand up here and others do and declare what is good, they go, that's evil. When I stand up here and say, this is righteousness, they go, you're wicked. You're a judgmental person. You're completely intolerant. It's interesting how intolerant they are of my intolerance. It's the only thing they're intolerant of. 
sin has to be declared as sin. <laughs> Acceptance is not what the Scripture is promoting. Look at verse 27. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth, that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was, when she gave, was giving birth, that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first, just, hey, you know, we get these kids out here in the open, and we get cleaning them up, you know, they might be identical twins, and we wouldn't know which one was born first, so let's just tag this one right now. Ties the scarlet thread on his hand. This one came out first. Then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore, his name was called Perez. The idea is to break through or to breach. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zara, which simply means scarlet. This family has an interesting history of the younger exceeding the older, in the womb and out of the womb. I find it interesting as you move through this how there are common themes throughout the Scripture. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. We're going to move into chapter 39 next week. Read ahead, you'll get extra credit. In the process, Joseph is in the home of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife, and the whole encounter that goes on there, her accusation comes from the fact that she strips his robe off from him. His brothers stripped his robe off from him. This guy has a problem with clothes. Watch. Read forward. Do you find common themes in your own life? Things that seem to somehow hold a theme in the positive and other areas that commonly you're struggling in the same area, same way, similar circumstances. You'll find the Lord supporting victory in whatever challenges you face. As you're looking at your life and examining people around you and thinking, I don't see anybody else struggling with this. <laughs> you know, Joseph's like, you know, nobody else has problems with clothes like I do. People, people want to kill me over clothes. It's the craziest thing. Nobody else. Yet God is with him. Right? No temptation is overtaken you except what is common to man. My point within this, I'm not just trying to be weird. My point within this is we sometimes get it in our head. I'm unique. Yes, yes, yes. God's helping my neighbor over there. But my circumstances are so weird, strange, and unique. God's not helping me. That's not true. God is in your midst. The God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's your God. If you're here worshiping Him, that's the same God. And He is here to help you. Your, your circumstances are not so unique that God has somehow said, I'd love to help, but you are weird. 
That's not where you're at. God is your faithful supporter also. Don't listen to those voices in your head, your heart, your environment that would convince you you're on your own. That's not where God is at, right? When we read the the eye of the Lord goes to and fro throughout the land, if we don't know the rest of the verse, we think of it like, yeah, he's looking for those that he could condemn. That's not the eye of the Lord. Chronicles tells us the eye of the Lord searches to and fro throughout the land, looking for those whose hearts are loyal toward him, that he would strongly support them. Do you not need God's strong support, brothers and sisters? We do. God knows you where you are. He cares for your particular circumstance, and he wants to support you. Let him. Make sense? Let's stand and we'll pray. Read ahead, Genesis 39, next week. We get back to the story of Joseph. Very interesting. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. I pray that you would help us. Help us to love you and follow you, Lord. We want to see your work and your will being done in our lives, in our circumstances. Please help us to submit to you. Help us to submit to your great strength, your loving kindness, your will for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.